Welcome to a guide to art, activism, and culture. I'm your host, Zoe Elena Moldenhauer. This podcast is brought to you by the Aerogram Center for Arts and Culture, where we delve into social issues seen in museums and in art collections today. Today's topic, by thread, I walk. Joining me is Maryland-based artist Inga Bragadotter. Inga is a fiber artist with an emphasis on materials and experimentation. Her work spans from performance to photography, textile and sculpture, and often explores identity and the body in relation to its environment. Inga, thank you for joining me. Thank I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited to have you because we have been long friends. So this is a nice opportunity to be able to like see the evolution of your work. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Inga Braggadotter. Um, I'm an artist from Maryland. I live in Rockville. I graduated last year from MICA in Baltimore. And this is my first solo show at Aerogram Art Center. Cool. <laughs> That's so exciting. It is how, exciting. How are you feeling having your first solo show? I feel really good about it. I um I didn't really get to have like a thesis show that was a solo show. So a lot of this work is from my thesis. So it kind of feels like it's all coming together now. A lot of my thesis, a lot of the works in this were done in quarantine. Actually, most of them were in like the last few months. They were all done in quarantine. Was Dirtbag also created? Dirtbag was made in quarantine right before my thesis was due. That one was completely off the cuff. There was zero planning. I just thought of it one day and I did it and it was the most freeing experience of my life. <laughs> and it was still like one of my better pieces in my thesis. Uh, forest tapestry. Yeah, you know, a lot of people have really liked that one. It's they, a beautiful piece. They, yeah, they really like it. But I've actually had the idea of doing that piece, but in a couple different colors for like different elements. So I've like thought about like maybe doing a blue one, be like water. Forest tapestry reminds me of a waterfall without it even needing yeah. to. Here's the story with the forest tapestry one. That was supposed to be a huge tapestry. And I both ran out of time because I'm bad with my time. And also COVID happened. So I had to do it at home. And my frame loom is not that big. So I couldn't make a big one. So I was like, okay, I'll make it really long by just having these huge tassels. And that's going to make it a long tapestry. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> it, it does. With the restrictions that you have sometimes kind of creates the best work. I think quarantine was actually really good for me because it really lowered the stakes. You know what? It did make it more homely and domestic because I did have to do everything at home with things that were available to me. And I did it. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's why I like textile art. So I guess we'll we'll jump into our first question. Your work hints at the relationship between land and labor. Your piece, Fishing Net, is one of the first pieces that we see when looking at the exhibit. In our previous conversations, you talked about how it was both performative, but also about labor, you know, how you use fishing nets to cast and capture, but also you're asking us to wear it if it's a performative piece. How do you kind of decide on those themes? Well, that uh, fishing net piece was one that I made a while ago, actually, is about five years ago. And that was before I even 
went into art school, the idea was for it to just be a performance. So it was a performance and I was really just making this object to create that performance. It was very inspired by Rebecca Horn, who's an artist who makes these body extensions, which are like sculptural objects, but they really belong on the body and there's always a movement that goes with them and there's performative element. So that was what that was based on. And I wish I could really remember like the thoughts behind it, but it was so long ago. And I was so like unaware of like recording things, but I know like I was really drawn to this rope material and being surrounded by it. So the way that it's shown in Lands Untethered is on the wall, but how I originally did it was, it was a net that was completely surrounding me. I was like sewn into it and it has these like an extended arm really because Mm -hmm. my arms are like bound inside the net Mm -hmm. so instead of limbs I have these limbs that are these long pieces of rope with um, sinking weights and hooks attached to them and so in my performance I don't have a video of it I just have pictures of it I do this choreography to suggest like an emotion of being trapped, of being held in. And then I just twirl around really fast. All of the ropes fly around me as if my arms are extended. So it was kind of dangerous because I was afraid that one of the steel hooks, they're like really heavy. They're like probably a pound or two. Like I was afraid they would like just keep going. Fly off or something. Oh no. It was really heavy. I mean oh. like when I was wearing it, because I was in like a like a leotard, there was like these red marks digging into my skin. It was it's a really heavy object. <laughs> but I kind of just stowed it away for a while after five years and I rediscovered it from coming back home after school. And I was like, this fits in so much with my thesis. Like It's amazing how you don't even realize the work you're making and then it all fits together. And I just wanted to display it in a different way. I mean, because now I feel like I'm really into more like sculptural objects, displays and like wall hangings is something I've been working on. So instead of doing it as a performance, I wanted it to display it as a piece of art on the wall And I tried different ways. I mean, I think there's so many ways to display this piece. Like I would display it hanging from the ceiling even Mm -hmm. if I could. Do you see different environments where you can wear fishing net, where you can do the performance in water or you can do it in a city? How does the environment play? I like your idea of the water. I should try that one. (laughs) (laughs) You might catch something. Yeah, really. I love it. That was kind of the idea with it was that it's like, I, I'm not like catching fish with it now, but when I'm spinning around in the air, I'm supposed to be catching something. And that's kind of my way of like making up for the lack of limbs. I, I don't know. I think I'm just like trying things out really, experimenting. For me, presentation and display is like so much of the work, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to like sculptural objects. That's like 50% of it. 
So, I mean, are there other materials, like other examples where the material informs an idea or is it the idea that informs the work? It definitely goes both ways. So like for the leather quilt piece that's in the show, I was really looking for something, some type of material that would reflect human skin, but also animal skin. Mm -hmm. So I kind of went with this leather, it's a fake leather, and I tried to get one that matched my skin tone the closest I could. In a way, looks like one of those rugs that you buy as yeah, a skinned animal. Cowhide. Yeah, that's what it's, that's how I cut it out with the idea of like a material of a human, even though that sounds really grotesque. Um, <laughs> and then for Bomol in the show, I came across this white rug in my storage room. I saw it and I unrolled it and I thought this looks like a canvas. This looks like something that I could put work on, which isn't always how I think of things as a textile artist. Usually I'm used to like creating the material, mm. but now I'm kind of thinking of collaging material. So I saw it and it's, it's like a perfect rectangle looks like it would be a painting or something. So I kind of went with that. And then I was applying similar techniques to what I was using for the leather quilt of stitching down threads to the surface to create a pattern or a drawing. Can you explain the story behind your piece, Mercedes Poses? Yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> so Mercedes is my great-great-grandmother. I have seen her photo a lot since I was a kid. We have it hanging um, in our house in Iceland. I knew that I wanted to make art that incorporated a photo of my ancestors. And I didn't know what that would be. It was originally supposed to be a screen print. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that I would create a weaving with no color in it that had varying levels of thick material in it and that I would screen print this image of my ancestors on it and the material would obfuscate the image and that didn't really happen because of COVID. So in March, our school closed down and I was in screen printing at the time. I don't really know anything about screen printing. Um, so I kind of had to work differently and I found this image and I ended up affixing it to the weaving in a different way and it worked really well. Because it's the size of the photograph itself and then centered right in this weaving. Yeah, so I always have this idea of people having a connection to people from the past through things in time that don't change. Like a mountain is a good example. Mm. A mountain that's been there for millions of years. It's the same mountain that was there when my great-great-great-grandmother was alive mm. and then when I was alive. So in that way, I feel like it connects me to people from my past, um, people that I don't know. I like the idea that I've never met this person, but she's still lives in me somehow. It's a nice thought to have in terms of like grieving that 
you know, people don't really leave you. They're always kind of with you, even if it's like in a very weird way, like scientifically, like DNA. But I also think of it as kind of like history. Like I couldn't be here. Like I am just like the living remains of this person. That's a very spiritual way of thinking how the land is so connected to the people that live on it because the land ultimately changes with the footprints that people make, how they build on top of it, the things that they, you know, kind of do to exploit the land in some way. And so I I definitely see that relationship in that piece and how it kind of does ask you to think about lineage and your heritage as well as where you are in the world. Yeah, exactly. So this idea of like transcending time and connecting people through it. I mean, can I ask about the land that's been repurposed by the Chinese government? (laughs) I know you're dying to ask about that. Uh, I think it's a really cool story. I really like it. You're talking about something that's really personal, but then you have this thing that's happening over the umbrella of your story. Yeah. So in my thesis, one of the things that I was inspired by was the visuals of a desert landscape. Which the piece Mercedes pose is digitally. Yeah, so that was an image that I found in my family archives of, it's a very mysterious photograph that I found, the landscape that she's superimposed on in the image. Um, We don't know who took those photographs. It was a whole series of like, beautiful landscape photography somewhere in South America, we think. And there's no, we don't know who took it. We have like, there's a few photographers in our family. We have a lot of like artists, writers, musicians. So it wasn't surprising that we found these like beautiful images. We just don't know who took them or where they're from. We don't know when they were taken. I found them and I thought they were beautiful and I thought I had to use them because they just go so well with Mercedes' photo. So one of the things I was looking at was the desert landscape, the colors and the ideas of it, very barren land. And one of the reasons for that is my grandfather lives in a desert right now in Peru. He's at the very south of Peru, almost in Chile. And to get to him, we have to drive two hours through the desert where there's literally nothing there. It's just complete desert. feels like forever for two hours. And then we get to him and then he's in a town and it's still in the desert. Um, (laughs) That's not something that I'm used to growing up here in Maryland. I was just very inspired by that visually. It's also funny because there's this thing in my family where we inherited this huge desert in Peru from a relative whose will from the 1800s was discovered, I think 10 or 15 years ago. And it was discovered that he owned this land and that he never sold it and it still belonged to us and we didn't know, my whole family in Peru. So for the past like 10 or 15 years, it's kind of been this weird legal game of like who owns what share of the desert it's just this endless litigation and it feels completely pointless it's a useless desert I might add there's literally nothing there but they're still arguing over it 
And on top of that, there's also like a random Chinese company that's mining for minerals there, which is really, I think, the only reason why my family even wants that land or like they want to sell it or something. I mean, I'm kind of of the mind, like, why does it even matter? We don't need it. We don't have any use for it. So it's just kind of funny, this thing, and that I incorporated the desert because it's like this thing going on in my family, kind of in the background. It's not like a huge deal, but it is interesting when you discover something like that, how it kind of brings the family out of the woodworks to interact with each other. And all of a sudden there's like, oh, well, maybe he's not really our cousin. He's the illegitimate son of this person. He doesn't really have claim to this land. It's like a whole soap opera. This does lead into themes of colonization in how ownership of land and how land equals power. I was just curious if you were thinking about that when you were creating Mercedes poses. I can say 100% I wasn't thinking of that when I was creating Mercedes poses. But I also think that when you're a land artist or you're making any kind of artwork about land, that is something that you have to contend with is that whole idea of land ownership. It's extremely Western and capitalist oriented. I do kind of see it as ironic because, I mean, I don't see why my family deserves to own a random desert more than anyone else in the world. Um, (laughs) It's not like it's indigenous land to us or anything. This is like completely meaningless land to us that we have never heard of, have no use for. And like, you know, my family came from Europe. So they were like one of the colonizers, you could say. So then they're like participating in this very like Western colonization notion of owning land. And now like more than a hundred years have passed and they're trying to like get it back. Meanwhile, there's like a new form of colonization that's now happening with China. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just cool to have a desert, but I don't think it's worth the trouble. <laughs> In terms of colonization, an extension of that would be gendered stereotypes that textiles are often associated with women. Are you thinking about that as a a woman who creates textiles? So, no. But (laughs) (laughs) I don't think these are things that I think about consciously when I'm making it. But as a fiber artist, there's no way that you don't like confront that ever when you're in the fiber world. I have never really had any issues with it. I think I've always gravitated towards textiles because it felt so femme-centered. I feel like my grandmother was like an embroiderer and a seamstress. So I kind of feel like there is like this matrilineal connection to it that is comforting for me. I think the problem that people have with saying that textile art is like female centered or whatever is not that it has anything to do with females but more the idea of people associating it with domestic work and domestic work is traditionally like undervalued work I think that's more wherein the problem lies I don't know I feel kind of disconnected from that just because it's not something that I think about in my day-to-day practice I just see myself as an artist in general, more so than only a textile or fiber-based artist. But it's fair. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, I feel like 
most people don't really know what to think of when they think of fiber art. It's only like an uphill battle in that sense. I think in the realm of gender studies, reclaiming the thing that makes you stagnant. Women are often always domestic workers, as you said. Well, I guess like in a historical sense, you know, painting and sculpting like traditionally is always seen as what fine art is. So I know for artists, textile artists in the 60s and 70s, it was a really big thing for them to have the medium taken seriously Mm. and um, to be seen as more than just, you know, domestic knitters or sewers or something. And yeah, with fiber art, there is a domestic quality for me in the sense that I am just kind of in my basement with a sewing machine. Like it feels very homely and crafty in that sense. I don't have to be in a wood shop or a metal shop creating like monumental structures or whatever. The textile industry has a long history of pollution and waste. How are you making those connections between the land and the environment and the materials you use? Have you made other works that respond to the textile industry in in some way? I would say my practice as an artist is more informed by that awareness of the damages of the textile industry. And That's something that I've noticed is pretty common with uh, other textile artists. We're very like hyper aware of the damages and not only that, but the whole like process that goes into textile industry, especially for clothing and fast fashion, Mm -hmm. Um, not just environmentally, but in with human labor and human rights, because this is like our medium is a lot of times something will feel strongly about. So even though I don't always make work responding to that, I'm very aware of how much is my studio practice impacting the environment. And I think with that, I've developed this kind of pack rat mentality, which is also very common for artists, especially fiber artists. We just like hoard material. Um, I have so much material like and just like scraps sometimes it's just scraps and I'm like well I could use it for something you know (laughs) I might as well just keep it I mean that's really how that's how Bomol was too because I was using this consumer item which is an Ikea rug and I'm thinking yeah I'm probably not going to use this as an actual rug I have like two or three of them that I found. So it's just kind of like this post-consumer item I have. But because of the way my mind is, I'm like, I can make this into art. That's always my feeling when I come across material, even if it's trash, I'm like, what can I do with this? Can I make this into art? That's why when I saw this rug, I was immediately like, oh, this is like a canvas that I can like put things on top of and collage fabric. In that way, yes, that would be how I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I have so much material, just so much. I'm always accepting it. And that's how it was at school too. There was always this mentality of like reusing and like, you know, giving to someone else who might need it um, or like donating. That was really big. That probably helped influence that with me. In terms of the environment also, there is my Black Rocks, piece which isn't in this show but 
it fits really well. It would have been great in this show. It's this piece that I made that hangs off of the wall as an installation and it's made out of plastic bags. So I was collecting plastic bags for months and months and knitting them and turning it into this wall installation that was inspired by volcanic rock. It started out not as an environmental statement of like, you know, look at how awful this is, but more as look at this extra material that's just lying around. It's completely free and it's just going to go to waste if I don't use it. So why don't I make something useful out of it? So in that way, actually, my practice is pretty cheap in my material costs. So, <laughs> so when people are like complaining about paint and so like, oh, it's so expensive. I have to buy this paint and this canvas. I'm like, I just, I don't, I can't relate. Like I literally just am making stuff out of trash and scraps. So <laughs> sounds like it's bad art. When I do stuff like that, I try really hard to make it hard to tell what is the original material or purpose. So that is something that I've come across a lot when people look at my art. Their first question is always like, what is that? Like they just have a hard time understanding what the material is or like what's been done with it. So with the black rocks, it wasn't just plastic bags, but I also dipped it in paint, house paint almost. So it was really cool because the paint kind of encapsulated the plastic, like it formed like this case around it. Yeah, I love that people can't tell that it's plastic bags because I don't want the point of it to be like environmental right. or like in quotes. Like that's not really the point of it. I feel like I'm just an artist who's making work in a time of severe environmental distress. And this is how I have to like respond to it. I'm thinking about like the idea of camouflaging something to look like something else related to the environment, like deterioration, see like trash bags on the street and how they start to become molded into the road. No, that's like a really good observation that I didn't think of when you think of it. Cause yeah, plastic bags are, they do kind of become part of our environment because they are so around always. And in this way, in this one piece that I made, it's kind of using that and then making it into a different environment, which is like the volcanic rocks. Leather quilt also reflects on consumerism, how we skin animals to make clothing or decorative rugs. Yeah, it is. It is this cycle of thought that I had, which is the idea of beauty and destruction. So, you know, a lot of people are really repulsed by cow hides, I found with this piece. Um, I didn't know that. I've always thought they were so beautiful. That's because I think cows are so beautiful. So it's this idea of destruction, dominance over this natural being, this animal, this cow that is, you know, completely helpless. A lot like nature is, like nature can't stop us exactly from destroying it, at least not immediately. Um, so the idea of like dominating nature and a cow creating it into this cowhide, which is supposed to serve as an object of beauty, but it also shows like a dominance over nature. The connection I was making is how people do that with humans as well as a means of objectifying for terms of beauty, like females 
a lot of my other work has also been the idea of feminist environment or land art, often a lot of times about making the connection between like sexism and the patriarchy and then like Western capitalism. So I kind of felt this connection between putting nature on a pedestal and saying how it's the most beautiful thing ever, but then at the same time destroying it and dominating it. The similar thing is done with like women, which to me is always very clear in like classical art, putting women on a pedestal is like this beautiful object, but at the same time dominating it and controlling it. And I think I was kind of making that connection with leather quilt. But without um, the nude female, instead it's the skin that is being exploited, but now yeah. it's being displayed. Yeah, it's really grotesque. But I also, but at the same time, to me, I think cowhides are so beautiful. Not because of, not the cowhide itself. Like I think the cow itself is beautiful. Like when I see a cow with like a beautiful coat, I'm like, wow, that's a great cow. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm being sarcastic, but I follow a lot of cows on Instagram. Any handles you want to shout out? There's a few. I don't think we have enough time. <laughs> I'm also thinking of the history of museums and the collections that they have, like Native American bodies, and how there is this long and horrible history of collecting Indigenous bodies, but also people of color, and how they become displayed in that way for the white gaze. And I would say the same thing is done with nature as well. I think this Terrence McKenna quote that was like, you know, the more we distance ourselves from nature and take ourselves out of it as humans, the easier it is to destroy it. Which is like interesting because to me, I feel like humans developed in nature. Like that is our environment. But now we only live inside. And it feels like very strange to me, like how disconnected there is. There is a cyclical relationship. You were born from the land. It is the land that you have it in. And you take from the land, but also you have it back. It's a very spiritual practice that a lot of people don't do. I think it's because we're in a very consumerist society where you can just go on Amazon and hit add to cart. It removes the self. Yeah, we're like really disconnected. Like I think about like food too. And I'm like, we have to eat food every day and that food grows from the ground, but we have no idea what that really is. We're so not a part of that. Whole different conversation. <laughs> well, what's next? Okay, well, you know about that parks residency. So that's like something that I'm working on right now. And also like the walk this way installation experiential walk but I don't know like I like what are my next steps like how do I move something forward like I've never done something like this so for me like I'm still planning it out and maybe maybe I'll like consult this with you because I feel like you're really good at like self-starting things okay (laughs) (laughs) so like yeah like I'm trying to work out like what exactly does that mean um like I'd like to have a year or so of like working on my practice and really like building up knowledge like academically and like spiritually and physically in my work. So I think that's what I want to turn the parks residency into. I'm just like really hard on myself and I feel like I have to know everything right now and I have to have an action plan, but I don't. It's better to start messy. That's what's worked for me. You know, I'm scared to like tell people of my future plans because I feel like what if they don't happen and I just like fail at them? That's what I feel like. It's so bad. I will help you. I'll make sure you never get to that point. (laughs) Yeah.
but okay, yeah. So right now I am working on a installation slash experiential walk outdoors that is almost like a little bit part performance. Like it's kind of giving directions to the walkers who are walking through it to like do the performance or think about things. Um, So that's what I'm working on right now. And I want to install it in a public park in Montgomery County, Maryland. And then after that, I'm really just, I'm just trying to make more art. (laughs) Good. Trying to, I'm doing a little bit of things right now but um, yeah, so I'm, I don't have them with me. I wish I did, but I'm making this huge tube. It's a huge tube and it's going to be awesome. And I'm really excited for you to see it. <laughs> I'm excited now. I know it's going to be amazing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm making it. I just of- love your descriptions of things. <laughs> <laughs> making a quilt. I was like, okay, it's a leather quilt. Um, it's an Ikea rug. It's not just an Ikea rug. <laughs> You know, I have a better name for the leather quilt. I thought about it later, but um, my new name that I wish I had thought of before, I want to call the leather quilt the sacred cow or the sacred human. I'm not sure. That's what I would rename it. (laughs) I think every place that I have shown or like displayed this work, it's had like a different name. (laughs) It had had a different name in the Micah show. It had a different name in my thesis. And now I want to give it a different name. When you name it, it does give that work power. Because then we can identify it in that way. Yeah, it tells you a lot about the work, especially if you're unsure how to approach it. And I also think the reason I keep wanting to rename this work is because I keep rediscovering what it's about. (laughs) That's so cool. I think, yeah, letting your work speak for itself too. Or you learn something, you're like, well, you know, that's really what my work is also trying to say too. Right. It feels sometimes like I don't even know what I'm making. I just know I'm making it. And then I have to discover like what this is all saying collectively. Because I know it's saying something that's coming out of me. Just don't always know what. Well, do you have any sort of final reflections or closing statements you want to say? Oh, God. I wish. No. (laughs) Period. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. All works are for sale. (laughs) Oh, and where can they go? Where where can people go if they're interested? They can go to my website and email me or message me on Instagram, inga.atha, A-D-D-A. This has been A Guide to Art, Activism, and Culture, a podcast from the Eric Center for Arts and Culture. I've been your host, Zoe Elena Moldenhauer. Join us on our next episode, and in the meantime, visit our website at www.aerogram.org or follow us on social media at Arts to learn about opportunities, events, and more for artists and writers. 